Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. What three wrestling matches would you watch if you were stranded on a desert island? This is what I'm asking wrestling's best. In the ring, around the ring, behind the scenes, or behind a microphone. I'm Tom Campbell. Thank you for joining me on Cultaholic Island for another episode of Desert Island Graps. Kevin Kelly, how are we doing? Tom, how are you, man? It's great to be with you. Oh, it's lovely to be with yourself as well. Uh, the, the obvious question that we have to ask during this hellscape that is 2020 is uh, how's life in lockdown treated you, Kevin? <sighs> it hasn't been that much different than normal life, to be honest with you, other than not going to Japan. Uh, that obviously has been a huge change. But, um, you know, we pretty much go about our day to day life. And uh, my, my son, for example, my youngest son is in eighth grade. We, we homeschooled him already. So that wasn't a big change. And I'm able to work from home. So that's been nice and had a little bit more time to spend here, you know, and not go too stir crazy. And if we need to go out, we need to go out. So it's it's been OK. How are you finding the, the work life balance of now sort of work being at home and home being at work? It's uh, it's a great question because it, it for me at first, it was a bit troublesome. Uh, I always felt like I wasn't doing enough that I should have been doing more on both ends. You know what I mean? That I wasn't there enough for my family. I wasn't there enough for work. Um, just playing in my natural paranoia of having been in wrestling for 30 years. So it, it's a, uh, it, it took a little bit of adjustment and me relaxing a bit and also not getting too stressed out about the world and everything eventually coming back to normal. So uh, it, it, it took some adjustment. I put a rosy picture on it, but uh, yeah, it was a little bit difficult. Do you do, have you done anything to help with that? Like for me, it was putting like working hours on the door of the, of what this is like the spare room. This is now like the office. Like it's putting work hours on a whiteboard outside the door. So then mentally I go, it's this time, it's time for me to go home, i.e. into the living room <laughs> and live like a normal person. Do you do, have you done anything like that? It, but because of the work with New Japan, it's, you know, event driven. So if there's an event that day, uh, you know, I would receive the file, I would upload it to my computer, I would then voice it and send it to them via Dropbox. It's become now routine. At first, it was very different and very weird. And I uh, would spend a, a lot of time stressing about you know, the littlest things. But now it's it's just come to sort of go with the flow and uh, making sure that 
when I'm not working, I'm there with my family and I'm doing stuff, but we've all kind of settled into the COVID routine, if you will. Tell me something you've learned about yourself during lockdown. That going to a doctor and asking for help is not a bad thing. Okay. Um, for the past 20 years or so, I've, I've taken a very mild antidepressant and I've, I've never had to stray from it. I've never changed it. It's never been something that uh, I, I felt like I needed to uh, increase or decrease. It was just there. And I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed. So I went and spoke to my doctor and he helped me. So just up the dosage a little bit. I'll probably go back at some point and go back to what I was taking. Um, but I've also learned, I would say that to appreciate like what my wife has done while I was away all of the last better part of two and a half years you know, all the responsibilities here at home and the little things that we need to do, plus also needing to make time for my wife. We've been married uh, 27 years and we, you know, you sometimes lose the perspective, the proper perspective. So we've gone back and we've started integrating date nights into our thing and uh, trying to be uh, not just good to the family and our community and our loved ones, but also to each other. How do you do date nights at home? Do you like, is it like dim the lights, candles? Lit? No, no, we would actually, we'd actually go out, Tom. We'd oh, go to, beautiful. go to, go to a restaurant and, you know, you wear your mask. COVID's the funny thing. You wear your mask outside as you wait for your table. The server, the, the, you know, the hostess would uh, summon you and you wear a mask into the restaurant. You walk to your table and then as soon as you sit down, you remove your mask. Apparently, COVID like hovers above us, but when we're seated, we're okay. Like you and I are seating right now. The COVID mm. apparently can't touch us. It's just there. It's just there. All it's just, there. A, yeah. So uh, it's magic in that regard. But no, we've gone to a couple of different restaurants. There have been some places that we wanted to try out that we said, oh yeah, that's a new place. Let's oh that one over there. Let's try that. And uh like last Saturday, it was a little chilly outside and we sat outside of this uh, kind of pub place and had some oars d'oeuvres and uh, they had the little propane heaters set up outside and guy was playing songs on the guitar and, and we, uh, we had a nice time. So we've been trying to take advantage of situations like that. That sounds like a lovely evening, to be fair. And it's nice it's that you've nice. got the time to do it as well with, right. with, with everything going on. But uh, we do want to we, we talk about wrestling. That's why we're here today, among other okay. things as well. That's kind of the thing that, you know, this is, uh, it's a thing that binds us both. It's something that's been a big part of your life. And when I got into wrestling, um, you, were, you were there as a big part of my journey into wrestling as well. So this is... A pretty cool chat. A pretty cool chat for myself personally. But we're here um, because we're sending you onto a desert island, Kevin. Okay. And we're gonna somehow through the power of the technology, uh, we're we're burning a DVD featuring three wrestling matches. Okay. Happily watch whilst you're there. So, what would you like your first wrestling match to be? Well, uh, the I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I'm not. I'm probably less fussy than anyone else i can imagine that you know specific matches specific dates i'm more of an era guy so i look at wrestling in eras because the style is reflective of the era 
So the three matches that I've chosen are uh, one is specific and two are any in the series. The first one that I thought of is from the 1970s, the early 1970s, Dory Funk Jr. versus Jack Briscoe. Is there a particular <laughs> encounter from them that... Uh, that no, because they were all great. They're they were all, all different, but they were all great. If you get me a 60-minute draw from Florida with Jack Briscoe versus... I think the first one aired probably in 1973. They dedicated a whole hour of uh, programming to Championship Wrestling from Florida. And uh, if you could get me that match from the Bayfront Center, I would be happy. Uh, I would love that match. I would watch that over and over again. Can I also, can I also put in a, a promo? Can I have yeah. three in a promo? I tell you, we can, we can put a promo in. Is the promo from this, from this, the build to this one? No, it's no. a different promo. Okay. It's, it's the bridge between match one and match two. We go to 1980, July of 1980, Georgia Championship Wrestling. And it's available on YouTube, and I invite everybody to seek it out, especially would-be, want-to-be, uh, young, hopeful professional wrestlers. It's called The Turn of 1980. And it takes you back to Georgia Championship Wrestling when Ole Anderson turned on Dusty Rhodes, double-crossed him inside a steel cage. And Ole laying out the game plan of how this had been 18 months in the works where... He wanted Dusty. Dusty's own words, Gordon said, it would never be over. He played the tape. And Dusty says, it'll never be over. It'll never be over. Uh, in his own words, he said it would never be over, and I promised it would never be over. Uh, and then they showed the actual turn. Ole had lured Dusty. Dusty actually, and Ole explains it, uh, that Ole had tried to get close to Dusty. Ole had turned, had turned good and was no longer a nefarious rule breaker. And he teamed with Tommy Rich and Stan Hansen and uh, all these other do-gooders. Hated every minute of it, Ole says brilliantly. But he wanted to get to Dusty, and Ole's brother Gene said, no, 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 wait, when Ole said, I was thinking about actually going and asking Dusty to be my partner. But the ironic thing of this Gordon Soley is Dusty Rhodes asked me to be his partner. And we went one match with the Assassins and then two. And I said, how about a fence, Dusty? That way we can keep, the, keep those Assassins in. And the fool went for it. Uh, it's brilliant. And then Dusty explains, as you see him, because they showed the whole deal in the cage. And now they go uh, to a piece of tape where Dusty's talking about what happened. And you see Dusty, his nose had been broken and he's got you know, a cut on his face and a cut above his eye. And he says, it's nobody's fault but my own. Uh, and the heaviest thing is fixing to come down on you. I want no help. I need none. But in the Omni on Friday night, Andre the Giant is going to be there with me, with both the Anderson brothers. And payback, payback is hell, daddy. <laughs> There's the something about promo. whenever you do a promo, like a Dusty promo, you do slip into the voice, don't you? It's impossible not to. <laughs> uh, I did the, I did the uh, body of the promo one time we were on the bus uh, at the airport uh, at Narita, and I did it for Cody. Oh. And, you know what I mean? Like, uh, just talking about how much his dad meant to me as a young fan growing up in Florida. And I had always heard about Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe, mm. but that was before my time. So then I had to seek that out. 
and when I did seek it out, I've seen them wrestle in Japan. There's a, a there's a, I think it's, it's either for Baba or for Anoki. I'm not sure, but it it was featured on Japanese television, with a draw between them. Like you said, any any match between those two are great, but that promo has to be included. Where were you when you um, you said you sought that one out? Can you remember exactly the, the circumstances of when you watched uh, the, the Funk and Briscoe match for the first time? Like, were you at home? Were you with company? Can you remember where you were? No, always, you know, usually by myself, as my wife hates wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did make her watch the Clash of Champions the other day, the first Clash, um, with Sting versus Ric Flair, main event, 45-minute draw, and just you know, telling her little stories about sort of the history of the match and the nuance of the match and why it was so important because it was the war between WWF and the NWA, pay-per-view, and I'll put something on free TV and screw you. And eventually the cable operator said, all right, enough. Um, But that was history. That was part of history. So other than that, yeah, I pretty much watch wrestling by myself. Every once in a while, drag my boys in to watch something. But uh, Funk and Briscoe was probably something I sought out on YouTube. Was it, it was, was it your dad that got you into wrestling? Because I know he used to take uh, ringside photos, didn't he? He did, and I'll tell you a funny story. So 1975, living in New York, uh, we moved to Florida in 1976. As most people did in the mid-70s, New York became a hellhole. You'd walk outside and get stabbed every day. Uh, so my dad said, enough of that. Um, my dad got held up one night and had a gun put to his head and robbed. And he, he came home and he was bawling his eyes out to my mother. And then soon after my grandfather passed away and he was willed the house. So it was serendipitous that we moved to Florida. Anyway, 1975, uh, uh, WWF at the time aired at 12 midnight on WOR Channel 9. And my father was still up watching TV. I had gone to bed, but I had an upset stomach or I was sick or something. And I got up. And I was sitting watching harness racing with him that aired from 1130 to 12. And then as soon as the harness racing ended, wrestling started. And, you know, I'm seeing the images, you know, and it's Andre and it's Bruno and superstar Billy Graham and Dominic Danucci. And I'm like, oh, cool, wrestling. And my dad gets up and he stands in front of the TV. He says, before you watch this, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you what this is. <laughs> and he completely told me, is as far as he knew, which was limited, that it was all a show that was all put on, that it was all fake, blah, 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 blah. And he explains taking pictures ringside uh, and the, you know, uh, one wrestler in the corner having blood in his mouth. And he says, hey, get a shot of this. And he spits the blood out of his mouth, you know. So uh, I was like, I don't care, dad, just move. I want to watch wrestling. And then when we moved to Florida, it was in September of 76. We had the same TV that we had in New York. So it took a little bit. You turn it on, you pull the knob to turn it on. And it took the TV part, the screen, a few seconds to warm up. But the audio would come on first. So you hear with the TV channel. And in fact, you got good after a while. You would know, okay, well, it's on nine. I'm hearing, oh, that's Gilligan's Island. I'm not going to want to watch Gilligan's Island. So you'd start to t- turn the channel before the actual TV would warm up. Anyway, so cable guy comes on a Saturday to hook up cable for our house. First time we ever had this. And they give us quickie instructions of how to use this primitive cable box. And so I turn the TV on the same way and I'm hearing this sound. 
and I'm hearing Gordon Soley's voice. I didn't realize it at the time, but as the picture warms up, I'm watching championship wrestling from Florida and it was Mike Graham in the ring. I don't remember who Mike Graham was wrestling, but Mike Graham quickly won the match with a figure four and then they went to commercial and I was hooked. Uh, and that was, you know, September of 76. And I think I watched championship wrestling from Florida or the best of something every week from then until I probably went off to college in 85. And, uh, you know, so I was a loyal fan. It's something about wrestling, isn't it? That when you, when you, people watch it for the first time and they embrace it. And the one thing that always comes up in conversation when we do these is it's akin to magic in the sense that you watch it and you love it. And then when the day comes that you kind of find out a little bit more about what goes on behind it, like you, you discover the, for, for lack of a better term, you discover the sleight of hand. You either go, oh, that's awful. I don't like that. Or you go, that's amazing. I want to find out more. And I want to right. how to do it. And that was the spark for you, wasn't it? You kind of went, you, when you got, um, you watched it and you went, I need to know more. Did that happen? I was always, yeah, and more so, Tom, from the, I was always interested, believe it or not, in the business side of it. Okay. Um, the wrestling was always, okay, it's wrestling, but sometimes the wrestling would get in the way of the promos. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, you know, because I didn't really care about like I wasn't into the physical I would be if like say superstar Billy Graham had somebody in a bear hug or the figure four I always loved the figure four you, you don't grow up in Florida and not just fall in love with that move and try it on all your buddies but I always liked when the camera they would go to the arena and they would show you the big angle whatever that would happen the title changed hands in Tampa at the Fort Homer Hester Lee Armory but they would widen the camera out every once in a while and you could see how full the arena was. And that's the part that I loved. And when I went to my first live event, I think I was 11 years old. So it was like a year or two into my fandom. And I went to the West Palm Beach Auditorium with my dad and a friend of his who was a local policeman and his son, who I didn't know. And the four of us went down to West Palm. It was about a 45 minute drive to the auditorium with decent seats on the floor, probably eight or 10 rows back from, from the ring. And I just remember looking and sort of counting the house. Like, and I would always be interested in that. Uh, how well did something do? How interested are the fans in this? Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was what I was really liking. And how guys like, like Dusty or the Assassin or, you know, uh, Joe LaDuke or somebody like that could captivate my attention on the promo. Tommy Rich was another great one. Ole Anderson was another great one. And you would see how these angles would progress and how I would get into it that way. Um, with championship, or, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, Mr. Wrestling 2 wrestled Harley Race for the NWA world title. They showed the highlights from the Omni. And it went to a time limit draw. If it goes to a time limit draw, they got three judges at ringside. Somebody, I don't remember who, Dusty Rhodes and former NWA World Heavyweight Champion Dory Funk Jr. were the three judges. And the first judge, I was a heel wrestler, I'm going to say, he gets up and says, Harley Race is the winner. And the second judge, Dusty, gets in the ring, and he has his scoring. And he says, aggressiveness, Mr. Wrestling 2, uh, something, something, Harley Race. But this category, Mr. Wrestling 2. So I pick Mr. Wrestling 2 as the winner, and the crowd goes, yay! And then Dory Funk Jr. comes into the ring. 
and he stands there for a second and he looks at his piece of paper and he looks at his piece of paper and he crumples the piece of paper and he throws it down and he says, Harley Race is the winner and he leaves the ring. Well, the judges vote two to one. Harley Race is the winner. Well, Mr. Wrestling 2 went over and picked up the piece of paper and Dory Funk Jr. had written Mr. Wrestling 2 on the paper, but he changed his vote. So now Gordon Soley tells all the fans, write in, send your cards and letters to this address, and we will try to convince the NWA board of directors that Mr. Wrestling 2 should be awarded the NWA World Heavyweight title. So I very quickly got my pen and paper out. I'm writing, Mom, I need a stamp. I need a stamp. And then the next week on TV, they dump the big bag of mail out, right? Hundreds of letters just scattered all over the floor in the TVS studios. And I'm looking on, I'm trying to see if my letter is in there, you know? And then the next week, more letters. Oh my God. It was all just to book a rematch, right? And it also set up Dory Funk Jr. to have an issue with wrestling too. It was wonderful. And I, I just remember that. Like my mom would say to me, we're watching, you know, it's 6.05 on a Saturday night. Usually Championship Wrestling for Florida aired at noon. So I'm kind of watching it by myself. And then 6.05, my mom would be there, just whatever, because she was done doing all of her mom chores. And, you know, she would watch me like get psyched, get amplified and said to me, all right, do we need to turn this off? No. <laughs> Ole Anderson is beating up Tommy Rich, who's coming back from a knee injury, and Ole couldn't beat up Tommy Rich on the floor, but he got up into the ring to show Gordon how good his knee was, and as soon as he got up onto the ring, that's when Ole Anderson attacked him. I was losing my mind, dude. But it's so wonderful how, how he, all these years on, how you can still recall that beat for beat, word for word, moment for moment, and those, those are the bits of wrestling that grabs you, and it's, what's right. lovely is, even as a fan now, like everybody, like opinion spirals for everything in wrestling now. There is so much of it out there, but the one thing that always stays is those stories where it is it is an issue that is between two people. If it's told the right way, it grabs you the same. Yeah, my uh, and you mentioned before, like somebody would see wrestling and would figure out, you know, kind of some of the trick of it and go, ah, oh, I don't like this. And <laughs> my one buddy Jim that I always watch wrestling with was kind of that guy. He was the one that always wanted to tell you that he figured out how that was done. Oh, look, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that, that didn't interest me. Mm. I wasn't interested in that. Um, and I didn't not believe him, but I just didn't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it could all be a show. It could all be pretend, fake, make-believe, whatever. I don't care. I just like it. I didn't sit there and judge. Listen, the Fonz wasn't really a motorcycle tough guy. What? No. I'm telling you, it's true. Don't do it to me, Kevin. Don't <laughs> do it to me. You know, and the $6 million man, I'm sorry, did not have <laughs> bionic limbs and a bionic eye, even though I had the $6 million man action figure. And um, also, radio doesn't play all the, the radio presenters don't play all the same songs they want to play. And I bring that up because I know you've also dabbled in the radio world as well. Yes. Uh, it was my first instinct listening to radio when I was a kid was that the, the actual bands were in the studio with the disc oh. jockey. Like I didn't realize it was played on a record. So, um, but yeah, it was fun getting out of college. And my first job was at an oldies station 
So how, I how learned the a whole. Where did the passion for radio come from then? If wrestling came from your dad and watching it on the TV, where did the radio passion come from? It sort of came from the, and, and I always wanted to be a wrestling announcer from when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And when my friends, we would, you know, we would put together little scenes, whether it would be with my action figures or ac actually outside in my yard, I would record, and I wish I had these tapes, of, on my tape recorder, I would announce what was going on. So it was always what I wanted to do. And I figured that as long as I'm doing something in the industry, it might get me there. I didn't know how, but it was through radio that I got my first opportunity in wrestling. So I'm glad I did. You did a wrestling radio show? No, I was a disc jockey. Oh, okay. But was, did, you, did you do one afterwards or am I, did I? I might no, well, not on the radio. Uh, no. You know, did some podcasts, but it was a, you know, it was a legit, uh, at first it was a talk sports station where I got hired just as a board op. And then they uh, flip formats and the morning guy went on the air. <laughs> I didn't hear him say this, but I got called in the day and they said, uh, Kevin, we had to fire us. Uh, this is probably noon. And I think I was going to be in like probably two o'clock for my shift. Kevin, we had to fire uh, so-and-so today. Why? What happened? Well, during his morning show, he decided to get on and say that the Kennedys were all murderers. Oh, God. What? <laughs> Yeah, so we fired oh, him. So we want to know, do you want to be the morning guy? Sure. Amazing. Can I, can I get a raise? Well, yes. <laughs> Instead of $6 an hour, Kevin, we will pay you $7 an hour. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so how, long the you, money. How, how long were you the morning presenter for? Until I left the station in August. So probably from February until August. And I left the station because I moved to Orlando because wrestling was going to be my full-time gig. Uh, my first job in wrestling was actually on television as a host. Plus my now wife lived in Orlando. So I just needed an excuse to go move up there and be with her. Um, if you hadn't had gotten the, the wrestling gig, how far do you think he would have gone in radio? <sighs> it's a good question. Um, my program director, who was a legend, in radio, going back to the early days, Wolfman Jack, you know, the early days of rock and roll. Oh, yes. My guy, my guy was Johnny Dolan, who was from yeah. Kansas City. He was a legend, but he retired and then came out of retirement to be the program director and host afternoons on this station. Johnny Dolan said I was really good, that I had a feel for the music, like I could always talk right up to the post and I didn't have to look at the time. I would just feel the music. And he, he said, that's very important. Um, Whenever I took calls, he said I did a really good job of, of interviewing people, um, but kept it moving, kept the bitch short, made them fun, had a payoff, and you know he said I would, I would have done very well. I don't know how I would have leveraged it because I, I was so myopic in my view. Like it was just, I was just thinking wrestling all the time, but I wasn't at the station two months, Tom. And I had already gotten my first gig in wrestling out of it. So I never really had like a lot of time. As soon as I got a taste, I was hooked. I was going to keep doing wrestling no matter what. Is there something that um, obviously the, the wrestling gig came through the radio, but is there something that you learned in your time on the radio that has held you in good stead working as an announcer? It was, it's timing. That's one of the keys to 
you know, and if folks like my play-by-play -play commentary or not, one of the things that I do is there's a beat, there's a rhythm with every match, okay? And sometimes matches are slow and sometimes matches are fast. So you adjust your pace, your timing as an announcer based upon the action that you're seeing. You can't call a match with Manabu Nakanishi versus uh, Takashi Iska, for example, in New Japan, the same way you would call a junior heavyweight match because you've got bigger, slower heavyweights that take a little longer to pay off what they're doing as opposed to this, 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 this. So it's that timing and the reaction. Um, and, and that's kind of that innate feel. You know when the beat of the music is coming in and when you need to jump in and when you need to stop and when you need to lay out. Um, so that's kind of one big lesson that I got from that. I also learned the value of a college degree right away because I had gotten a college degree in communications from Florida State University. And that, uh, that helped me with radio and that also helped me to get into WWF one of the qualifications that they wanted was, we don't care what the degree is in, we just want you to have a college degree. Okay, well, I graduated with you know, a degree in communications. Oh, perfect, okay, great. It's something that um, Jim Ross gets a bit of a, 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 a tough time for when everybody says, oh, he, he gets these guys who, who went to state college and did football. And, and he actually explained it on Grilling JR where he said, it show, the reason I like to get people who are in with college degrees and that college background, because it shows commitment and it shows, um, it shows dedication and, and, that, and that side of it to the business rather than just being off the street. It shows that you can commit to something for several years and excel at it. So that's it, why I guess it's like any degree kind of. Yeah, and and it also shows that, uh, it, it, I think it also shows that you can do other things, you know, and that because the odds of making it and making a success, whether you're a wrestler or you're an announcer or anybody in wrestling, the odds of making it are pretty slim. You know, and I almost quit several times. Uh, I did, you know, it was... It, but again, what did I walk away into? Well, I was able to leverage that degree into sales and did sales for a number of years. Uh, and then, you know, until then I got the opportunity to be an ROH. And then, you know, ROH turned into New Japan and New Japan turns into today. So it was very beneficial to have that degree just so that it was something else I could fall back into. We're going to head off to Florida very shortly to see your, the next step of your career. But let's get your second wrestling match for your DVD. It, so um, we've had... The Funks, what's the second one? Yeah, so uh, Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk was one. We, I, I uh, shoehorned in my promo from 1980, but now we'll go to Chicago, actually uh, outside of Chicago uh, for WrestleMania 13. And we'll go Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart, 1997. This is uh, one that comes up a lot on this show. It's one that a lot of people have absorbed over the years in many different ways. Where were you when you first watched it? I was in the building. You were there. Well, of course, yes, you I were. Was you there. were there by that point, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was, you know, different than anything. When I first arrived at the building that day and everybody's like, oh, WrestleMania, WrestleMania, WrestleMania. And I had been, you know, on the road for you know, doing Raws every week and doing TV every week um, since July or so or June of the previous year. 
Um, and WrestleMania was like supposed to be this big thing. And we had gotten into town a couple of days early and we were there for the Slammy Awards and everything. And then we got to the building and I'm like, what's so, spe-? I'm thinking to myself, what's so special about this? It's really nothing that's special. I'd been there for pay-per-views. I'd been there through the Royal Rumble and this one didn't feel all that grand, WrestleMania 13. And it really wasn't. But boy, oh boy, uh, the show certainly delivered. How about, and there's something that people don't realize. You know, nowadays it's so common to see people use a uh, fire extinguisher in matches, right? Hardcore matches, fire extinguishers, and it's always the CO2, right? Well, they didn't have that. So they were like, oh, we want to use the fire extinguisher. It'll be a great uh, sound and noise and visual. Okay, so here's your fire extinguisher. Well, it was chemical. So one of them in the Nation of Domination versus, I can't remember who. Uh, it was Legion spray- of Doom and Ahmed, wasn't it? Legion of Doom and Ahmed versus the Nation of Domination. And somebody, maybe it was Farouk, sprays the fire extinguisher or somebody sprays the fire extinguisher. And this chemical cloud goes over the ring, ringside area. The French announcers over in the corner choking to death <laughs> because it was legitimately getting into their lungs. Uh, so that was a crazy moment. And then um, Bretton Austin broke all the rules. And, yeah. and uh, it became one of the most iconic moments ever, that magazine cover of a Raw magazine with the blood dripping off of Steve's head. I mean, come on, can't do any better than that. You had, now I, you were indeed there, as you say, you had that interview before Steve Austin walked out. And you said, the time is now. Mm-hmm. And Austin gave you the promo and he headed straight to the ring. Describe the, the mood in that promo, just backstage. Were you aware that this was going to be as iconic a moment as it was going to be? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. It was, let's get through this and let me get out of the way quickly so that we can get to the ring. (laughs) Because nobody pays to hear an announcer in that moment in time. No reason for a big soliloquy. Give me the the nuts and bolts, bang, head to the ring. Here we go. Is there a particular moment from that match, from where you were watching it backstage, that that resonates with you? Well, there were quite a few. And it was, you know, at first it was the tension in the building. It was the noise, the sound, the feel, the atmosphere. Um, And just everything that Brett and Steve did together was so tremendous. Steve was so good before his neck injury and just flew around the ring and taking all the big bumps for Brett and just selling and just flying around. And how can we not forget Ken Shamrock in that medium-sized referee <laughs> shirt, right? Like he's like it was painted on He was poured into it, wasn't he? Yeah. And, um, and the idea that everything else on the card was what it was, but this was real. This was that suspension of disbelief match where a young fan who might have been sitting there with his friend Jim over to the side going, eh, this is a da, 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 da. shut up, I like wrestling. <laughs> now he's gonna get to go, okay, you wanna see this now, pal? You're gonna tell me this is fake? These guys are beating the hell out of each other. <laughs> and that was just it. I mean, they, they beat the dog out of each other. It was just awesome. It was, was awesome. I watched that match probably a hundred times. What was the atmosphere backstage as that match was in progress? There were a lot of oohs and ahs. Mm. A lot of people gathered around the monitor. Most of the crew had finished and showered and were watching. And 
everybody was into it, you know, because they liked both guys and they knew it was going to be a good match and they're settling it. Oh, oh, it was a lot of that, you know, it was wild and it was different. Something that, you know, a lot of them hadn't seen in a long time. It stood out from everything else. Cause like you say, it was just that earthy realness to it. And the, the twist at the end, how, you know, the guy that came out to cheers left the booze. The guy that went out to booze left the cheers. The feeling was in the air for a Steve Austin anyway, but this really galvanized it. Was the It was it was turning the turn was beginning. He was so cool. And not that Brett wasn't cool, but he was a little bit, you know, he was a little bit yesterday. Mm. And, you know, Steve was new and fresh and different and so antagonistic and took no BS from anybody that him being able to uh, turn it on to that next level. And I just remember, again, the promo, you know, then in the warehouse, we have pink and black, what a joke, you know. Uh, and that was for Survivor Series. But that was always, you know, kind of that, uh, that's what hooked me into the match. When the promo team, which was different in WWE than the regular production team, that was the David Zahadi-led crew, Chris Chambers, those guys, when they put their heads together and they came up with a concept, those are where, you know, it wasn't just the cold opens of the pay-per-views. It was also some of those super memorable promos that they used, visual, light, sound, different settings. You know, that abandoned warehouse that was around the corner from the TV studio in Stanford was the home to some, to some great imagery we saw over the years. So was, was that warehouse, was that where the, I mean, I don't know this for definite, but was that where the Rory's War um, opening was filmed? Is it that I same I believe warehouse? so, yeah, wow. I think so. That is a piece of history there, isn't it? Yeah, it, uh, you know, there was a, uh, the <laughs> post-industrial age <laughs> Connecticut, there was a lot of great uh, abandoned warehouses that were either turned into, you know, condos or townhouses or, you know, also in this case became backdrops for iconic fan moments for wrestling fans. Uh, you are uh, so this was in 1997 this whole thing went down right uh, just before like we're going back a couple of years now because you're on your way to uh you're on your way to florida you've, you've left the radio station and, and this is it you've got the job in wrestling talk about your first day with the company oh my gosh so it was june 24 1996 um on the 23rd of june that was the royal that was uh, king of the ring austin 316 says i just whipped your ass okay a lot of people say that's the birth of the Attitude Era. And so I like to take credit for the entire Attitude Obviously. Era. Obviously. Obviously. Uh, but anyway, no, I, was, I flew to Green Bay, Wisconsin, because after they got done with the pay-per-view in Milwaukee, Raw was going to be the next day in Green Bay. So they said, just go to Green Bay. So I get my ticket, whatever, whatever. And I had to bring a lot of clothes with me because I was going from there back to Stanford and to my temporary apartment until I got moved in. So I got all this stuff with me and I get checked into the hotel and one bag is missing. What, what do you mean it's missing? Uh, well, the airline has lost your bag, Kevin. Oh no, that's all my suits. Awesome. So I have to go to my first day of TV in you know casual attire. I had a pair of long pants with me and a shirt and I'm like, hey, sorry guys. I. I, my, you know, the air, I went up to Kevin Dunn. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not wearing a suit. The airline lost my bag. It'll arrive here later today. I'm going to have it sent to the building and I'll be in a suit. Ah, it's no problem. So I'm sitting there and Kevin Dunn says, you know, before they start the production meeting, Dunn says, you know, thanks for everybody last night. Great show, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, Kevin, you have an introduction to make and he introduced me. He says, yep, uh, we have a new announcer starting today. Uh, he's from Florida, Kevin Kelly. And you know, hey, I get a little bit of that. Thank you. Good to be here. Looking forward to working with everybody. I find out later in the day, Mr. Perfect pulls me to the side. He became, we became fast friends. And he says, did you hear my chair when they announced your name? I thought I heard something. Why, what happened? He says, I was leaning back in my chair because we had all gone out with Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts. Buddy Roberts at the time before he passed away lived in Milwaukee. So they all went out and freebirded it up the night before. Everybody was bombed and everybody was hung over. So he says, I'm sitting back in my chair with my eyes closed and I hear Kevin Kelly. And I'm like, yeah. He says, don't you know who Kevin Kelly was? And I go, Nails. He goes, yeah, it was here in this building, Kevin, that Nails, in fact, in that office right across the hall, that was where Nails choked Vince. <laughs> he said, I thought it was a rib on Vince. <laughs> Turns out your name is Kevin Kelly. I said, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. It's oh, like, what a, what a great rib. Everybody, <laughs> everybody was awake. They were like, what? No, um, no, he's back. What's this? Oh, God, what is this? And um, that was what some of the pop was. Is it wasn't <laughs> the new announcer that was starting. It was because they thought Kevin was getting over on Vince a little. Um, and then I talked to Gorilla Monsoon, which was cool. Because not only was uh, Monsoon a big part of my wrestling fandom, but he and I, unbeknownst to him, were related by marriage. My great uncle married his sister-in-law. And when I was like eight years old, my mom and dad went to the wedding and went to the reception. And my dad brought home a Gorilla Monsoon autograph for me. So oh, wow. I told him that. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm John Bergen's uh, great nephew. And he says, oh, my gosh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I said, my dad went to the my mom and dad went to the wedding. I was too young to go. And they got me an autograph. So that was pretty cool. How was your first experience um, behind the desk at the WWF? Because obviously by this point you'd been, uh, you, you, you'd started your journey in it, but then you do hear stories about how uh, working on the announce desk for the WWF is a very different beast to many other places. How did you find it? I was scared to death. Mm -hmm. I was nervous. I, I didn't jump right in. Um, they had me come to a few TVs and just kind of sit. And then the first thing I did was backstage interviews at the July pay-per-view. Uh, and I think I had probably done like some syndicated stuff by then a little bit, uh, you know, where we're trying to make it seem like I'm in the arena or we're in the arena. And I just didn't think I was doing very well. Um, but, I, you know, and I asked, I'm like, am I doing okay? Yeah, you're still doing the shows, aren't you? Oh, well, yeah. Well, if you weren't doing well, they wouldn't have you do them. Oh, okay. Why did you feel you weren't doing very well? I don't know, just busting takes and things like that. Like it just took me a little while to understand the concept of live to tape and that we really can't stop, Kevin. We've got to keep going. And, you know, if you bust a take, you got to keep going. Okay, so figure out like a if you lose your train of thought and on camera, which at that point wasn't, I wasn't used to doing them in this high, I was just overcome by nerves. But they understood and eventually started to settle in and got a little bit of a rhythm and, and everything was okay. But yeah, it was it was uh, scary. It's um it's akin to and again as a, as a radio person because I've done I do a bit of radio myself. So it's again with that, it's the idea that when you're doing a live show, like things flow, things flow, things flow. If you have it to do like a, a pre-recorded show, a voice track show, or whatever, 
even though it's the same kind of energy, you tend to do links over and over and over again to get them just right. Yeah. It's that, it's that nerve of sort of pre of, of live and taped and how different that is. One of the great lessons that Jim Ross imparted to me was, Hey, even though we're sitting in this really small booth here in Stanford, Connecticut, we've got to be in the arena. We're there. We're, we're doing it live and, and we're there. We've already done it on camera where it looks like we're in the arena we've got to sound like we're in the arena. So don't be conversational. You've got to be big and loud because you're talking over the fans and, you know, as their level goes up, you, you got to go up too. So that's something I've always carried with me. You hear that a lot now. I, I, it's something that I pick up a lot now because we're seeing um, with, with WWE's product, we're seeing it in the Thunderdome and you can tell there is that. And, and as a result of everything that's going on, um, I don't know how much of it, you, do you still catch up with stuff happening in WWE? I know that you New Japan stuff takes up a lot of your time. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I've watched some of it, but I know from my own experience doing New Japan Strong, where we all got together in LA and new episodes air every Friday at 10 Eastern, 7 Pacific, only on njpwworld.com. Um, it's different and it's hard because there's no crowd. And I felt like Alex Kozlov and I, we were golf announcers and we're on the 18th <laughs> Jay White is lining up a four footer for birdie. Oh, he's got it. You know, so it was like, no, we got to be loud. And, you know, it, it might be distracting to the guys in the ring and apologize later, but we've got to sound like excitement, energy, fun. Oh, you know, that's how we make stars. And after a couple of days of it, we've sort of got the rhythm of it. Um, with, um, with your time in the WWF, there's, uh, there was, there's an amazing uh, honor that, that was bestowed, bestowed upon you which was to interview Freddie Blassie. Yes. Oh, my God. And so I'd love for you to tell the story. So Linda McMahon, she didn't dabble much in on the production side or on the wrestling side. And, and I was assigned to do this interview with Freddie Blassie. And it was not really much different. It was going to be for confidential or it was going to be for whatever. Um, and Linda, I was in talent relations at the time, but I was still doing stuff with TV. And Linda's office was directly at the end of the hall from talent relations. Um, and she called me or her assistant called me and said, can you come over and see Linda real quick? And I always liked Linda so much. So yeah, it was uh, no problem. Yes, Linda, what can I do? She said, you're going over to interview Freddie today. Yes. Um, Freddie is uh, in not great health. So can you make sure that you get as much as you can with him today because we don't know how much more time we're going to have with him. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. So I told the guys, Hey, listen, we're going to, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to get him to tell a lot of stories. So be ready. And I think we had four hours booked. We used all of it. First half of the interview. Well, first 45 minutes of the interview, let's say we did a tape change. So it was maybe half an hour. Freddie's dropping F-bombs the whole time. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And I said, all right, Fred, listen. That first tape was great. But can we tell some of the stories that we can actually put on TV now? <laughs> and yeah, sure, Kevin, no problem. Whatever you need. And he didn't swear once the rest of the way. I went back and I re-asked him some of the same questions. And he told the same story or slightly different. And And yeah, he was old old man and was a little tired you know but was he told me all about how he and his wife got married about how his wife was a television star in japan and uh she basically gave up her career in tv to be with him she was told you cannot be with him because he is a villainous 
foreign wrestler. Uh, and, you know, so she had to basically give up everything to be with him. And they've been together, what, 40? They were together 40 or 50 years. So it was, uh, it was just really cool to hear him tell stories. And it's stories that I still tell today, you know. I said, uh, tell me about some of the, you know, uh, there were wild scenes, I'm sure, and any riots that uh, stand out. Oh, yeah, quite a few. I got Bobo Brazil in the hold. And I'm like, okay, Bobo, come on, it's time. Time for the comeback. And Bobo's laying there. <laughs> Bobo, knock the shit off. It's time. <laughs> Damn it, Bobo, come on. <laughs> Here come the people, right? And they're starting to throw stuff and, you know, and it's getting tense. Another time, outdoor show, he's wrestling uh, Bruno San Martino. And it's the same scene. Here come the people. And he says, there was this one old little Italian woman that came right to the ring and she's giving me the finger and cursing me and everything like this. And I leave Bruno laying and as it was, you know, all the other heels come out from the dressing room and protect me to help me to get to the back. And they formed like a shield almost. And as the people are throwing garbage and sodas and beers and everything else, I duck underneath and I go through. They're all in their street clothes. They come back in the dressing room just covered in food. I had nothing on me. They were all so hot, you know. And it was just a lot of stories about back in the day. You know, he told me about his Regis Philbin time when he was in L.A. And he would be on, he'd drive down to San Diego and be on Regis Philbin show. And that's how they became such good friends. He kind of walked me through his whole life in his whole career we talked about the ricky dozon match with people dying you know and everyone in japan watching this and people having heart attacks watching it um you know it's just it's from from start to finish we covered it all how we got started in wrestling and how everything you know brought us to today is there anybody throughout the history of wrestling that you would love the chance to do that with past present um just sit down for four hours and just pick their brains and tell stories well, I would have loved to have had the chance to sit down with Dusty Rhodes. Um, I got an interview with Gordon Soley on Bite This, which I was thrilled with. I would, have lo I would love to sit down with Terry Funk one day and talk to him. Um, it, you know, the, the greatest stars of the different eras I would love to, you know, sit down with. Uh, it doesn't matter who they are or where they're from, you know, like really get into the history of some of the most important things. I would have loved to have had the chance to talk to Jim Barnett, who is one of the greatest executives ever in wrestling, you know, responsible for what, what uh, fans com came to know as studio wrestling, you know, in the territory days. Um, just a lot, any, any old legendary name from the past, I would love to just sit down and pick their brain with for, for as long as I could uh, to get into not the tragedies. I don't want to be dark side of the ring, you know, but I, I just want to hear the stories because I love all that old stuff. I love the history of wrestling. How did, um, how did your time with the WWF come to an end? One day they said, uh, you no longer work here. No, it really is what it was. I, mm -hmm. I knew it was coming because, uh, and it was, as it was explained to me, uh, you know, Steve Austin had uh, turned and Rock had left to gone, go to Hollywood and business was down and the uh, invasion of WCW and the brand expansion didn't happen the way they thought it would. And people were getting cut. And it was sort of department by department, week after week. 
And I saw the guillotine, you know, the blade swinging above my head. And I knew it was just a matter of time. And so on March 23rd, 2003, I got the call. Hey, Kevin, can you come down and meet us in the conference room? Sure. And I knew what it was. And, you know, there were apologies and uh, it's cool. I totally get it. I understand. It's wrestling. You know, for as much as it, they always said, oh, WWF, we're not wrestling, pal. Yeah, we're wrestling. It's a wrestling business, you know, and it's just the way it goes. What's the, what's the feeling like when you've, 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 you've pushed to get this, this work, work within wrestling and you're working for the, the biggest wrestling employer in the, in, on the planet. And is there a feeling that that's the end or is there like a new energy that burns for you to, to, to push forward to something new? The new energy, you know, certainly was there like, okay, this can lead to some other opportunities and we'll see what happens in wrestling. But that kind of quickly waned um, because there wasn't a lot of avenues to go at that point. This is 2003. The only other national wrestling show at that time was TNA and they were in its infancy. And I talked with Jeff Jarrett and he said, I have no money. I can't pay you. You know, we just hired this one and that one. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. So that was that. And then, okay, now what do I do? and was trying to get other jobs in radio or voiceover work and nothing, nothing. Again, this was the start of the Operation Desert Storm too, you know, 2003 and, or Iraqi Freedom. I can't remember which war it was. But anyway, I left on the day that the shock and awe campaign began. I was like, oh boy, not a good time to need to get a new job. But I was really out of work for uh, 13 months. And it was only about 11 months or so in and my wife like kind of going, you've got to do something. We're in financial trouble. I mean, foreclosure trouble. And I just thought, well, let me think about this. Oh, there has to be something I can do. And that's when I dealt, I, I tweaked my resume to really emphasize the sales portion of wrestling. Because yeah, I was an announcer, but I was a presenter. I was also a salesman. I was a pitch man. And I can sell. And I widened out the job search on Monster to just include a little bit more area and posted my resume and applied for a ton of different positions. It, it you know, from Connecticut all the way east to almost Massachusetts, all, all the way through New York and New Jersey into Pennsylvania. And I got five interviews in a week. I hadn't gotten one interview in 11 months. I got five interviews in a week with this new sales resume. They were all in Pennsylvania. So I said, honey, I think we're moving to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I drove, you know, slept in my car because we didn't have any money and did uh, the five interviews and got two offers and took the one from, uh, you know, William Scotsman, which was like a mobile office company uh, that worked with uh, construction in the construction industry. So I learned a new industry and I started to refine my sales skills and then I did that for about 18 months. It was a long commute. Mm. And I was sort of like, I'm not making enough money. I'm making just enough, but I'm not making enough money. Let me find something closer to home. And I was driving home and I heard an ad on the radio for selling radio time for being a salesman for these stations. So I called the, the, uh, the station manager. I called the general manager. I spoke to her and got the interview and got the job. So I started, you know, started my career in radio on the air and then, transitioned as so many uh, disc jockeys do to actually selling airtime. 
it's a very different beast, isn't it, to go from being on air and you 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 appreciate the industry in a very in a very different way. And I feel like it's it's always great when you work in a radio station where you've got people working on sales who are also presenters because they kind of get both sides of the business. And that helped me too because, and it was also wrestling because it was promos. So mm. I was given, it was a joke, right? You start and you fill out your paperwork and then you're handed this big packet of paper. What's this? Oh, these are all the stations. These are all the uh, uh, companies that you can't call on. Okay. <laughs> well, they're on other salesmen's lists, so you can't call upon them. And I'm looking through this massive, like, this is every business I know. All the car dealerships, all the big stores, all the, how am I going to sell any airtime? And then my boss comes behind and she hands me the yellow pages. <laughs> and it's a big laugh. Ha, 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 ha. This is your sales book. This is what you do. You drive around and you go and you knock on doors. And you, your job is to bring new business to the station. Okay, I understand that. So I would pull up in a shopping center and I'd have my business card in hand. And I would look at the stores and I would think of a creative idea. What would the commercial sound like on the air? Because I'm not selling rate. I'm not selling ratings. I'm selling an idea, a concept. I'm selling to businesses that otherwise wouldn't, you know, their advertising budget is how much money they have in their pocket, right? This isn't something that they plan out. So I would go in and I would say, hi, I'm from, you know, WSPG. I'm from the local radio stations here in town. I got an idea as I was sitting in the parking lot. Can I run it by you? Yeah, sure. And I would basically cut a promo, a wrestling promo, if you will, on what the commercial might sound like. And more times than not, it worked because I was able to grab them emotionally right away. And I thought outside the box, right? Like I didn't listen to the other spots and try to duplicate them. In fact, I found most of them to be, you know, kind of tripe. I was like, huh. but let me come up with a cool concept or a fun idea. And then I would get together with my production director who was a, a hoot and he and I would really expound upon this and just, blow it out. And we came up with some of the craziest commercials that we, that the station did. One of the disc jockeys said to me, Kevin, you have no idea how refreshing it is to hear your spots during, <laughs> you know, my shift because they're funny. They're fun. They're different. It's not warm, friendly face, hours of operation. Here's what's on the menu. Boring. You know, I was, how do you sell a movie theater? A new movie theater opens up in town and I got them. Well, I came up with this whole concept of, the manager of the movie theater coming up with these big promotional ideas and his nerdy assistant who would be the voice of reason you know we're gonna have you know, the b movie is coming out i've brought in all of these bees <laughs> uh, i don't think that's such a good idea boss you know and of course he'd wind up getting stung and and it was and we'd have the funny payoff at the end but that was the idea i had my young son come in and do voices for commercials <laughs> i did spec spots with him Whatever, there was no idea that was out of bounds. And the more creative we got, my billings went up. And all of a sudden, I'm at $33,000 a month. And I'm like, wow, this is really great. And then they flipped all three formats of the three stations I worked at in a week. And oh. my billings went from 33 to 18 a month. And I was like, oh, no, I got to do it again. And then I got another opportunity to 
to do another line of sales. And I was like, ah, I think this is the time to move on. I had been there a year and a half, but I learned a lot of good lessons in radio about how to ask for business. And that's what, a lot of times that's what wrestlers don't do. And I've imparted that because I've done a lot of, you know, um, seminars over the years. And I'm like, you have to ask for the business. You have to ask. You can't just say, hey, I'm here. Or you can't just send your pictures and your, you know, YouTube links. You got to follow up and you got to ask for the business. And and my my boss, Maureen Barth, who was the, you know, I learned more from her than anything else. The two most important questions, what's it going to take and when can we get started? And, and you know, that basically closed a lot of sales for me. The guys, him and Han, blah, blah, blah. I said, listen, what's it going to take? <laughs> I need uh, five more spots a week. All right. Hold on a second. Let me go outside and call my boss. And I would pretend to call. Okay. You got it. When can we get started? <laughs> Amazing. And that would be it. That would be Amazing. it. Hey, Maureen, so we've got to add five more spots on. Oh, you're killing me, Kevin. All right. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes should, better, it's better to see. I hand her the check, right? Yeah, I hand her the check. Oh, $2,000. Very good. Excellent. From this little business that does, you know, uh, $5,000 in sales in a month. But we took, you know, and again, I would go in and I would joke. I say, hey, see, you're, uh, you know, open for business, grand openings. Uh, tremendous. What are you doing for advertising? Uh, we're really not going to do anything right now. Oh, do you have going out of business on the other side of that sign? Because you're going to need it in about <laughs> six months if you don't advertise. And most of the time I was right. You know, or I would get them to at least listen to me. Um, and eventually we pretty much got everybody on the air. And then when I went into another sales line where I was actually selling tangible product for a company called GANS, I went back to a lot of my clients and said, hey, remember I used to sell you radio? Of course, Kevin, good to see you again. Listen, you need my products in your store. <laughs> so I was raking over a lot of the same ground. We return to the voice of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Kevin Kelly, in just a moment. Eggshells Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome by Chris Charlton is a must-have for any fans of New Japan Pro Wrestling. It documents some of the greatest matches and moments inside one of the greatest wrestling venues on the planet. And you can own the audiobook for free right now if you go to cultaholic.com forward slash audible. Sign up to Audible for 30 days. Get a free wrestling book when you do. Enjoy everything about Audible for 30 days absolutely free. But if you choose after 30 days to not stick around with Audible, you can cancel. It won't cost you a penny, but you can keep the audiobook that you have from us. Find out more at cultaholic.com forward slash audible. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. What pulled you back into wrestling? Uh, I started watching the Ring of Honor show on HDNet, and uh, I see Jim Cornette come out. And he had left TNA and he was on Ring of Honor. And I sent Jim an email. Hey, long time no speak. How you doing, <laughs> pal? Now that you're out of witness protection in TNA, uh, can I help you with Ring of Honor? Because the play-by-play uh, -play guy I've heard is not so great. And he called me the next day or he responded to my email. Yes, let's talk. And so, uh, so that was kind of how it got started with Ring of Honor. Jim Corner is um, he's, he's such an interesting character online, and it's the, the the phrase "marmite" comes to mind, where like you either love him or you hate right. him. Um, the what was your initial impression when you met Jim Corner? He and I hit it off instantly. Uh, we were we became fast friends because he knew that I was a wrestling guy like him, and that was sometimes a dirty word within the walls of Titan Towers. You didn't want to be the wrestling guy. You don't want to be a wrestling fan. Ooh. What's wrong with you? No, I like wrestling. That's why I work in wrestling. Uh, <laughs> I was a fan since I was a kid. And, you know, you have to like it. You have to love it. It has to be in your soul in order for you to really be able to speak to the fans on a convincing level. You have to relate to the fans. And if you never had that fan experience, how can you relate to them? Ah, <laughs> yucky. <laughs> but so Cornette and I always got along great. And, um, I listened to, I rode with him a bunch and, and listened to a lot of not only his stories, but also his lament, you know, about the situation that was going on in, in WWF. At the same time, I worked with Vince Russo on the magazine side. So I heard Russo's side of a lot of things, you know, and I wasn't saying what the other said, but I was just listening to each and trying to sort of like come together and at least just be a sounding board and, and just let them vent. And, and that really was a lot of what I did. You reached out to, to Jim and, and lo and behold, uh, you're, you're back into wrestling at Ring of Honor. What was the yeah. feeling after being away for, 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 amount of, for such an amount of time to come back into wrestling? What was the vibe when you walked back in? Well, it, it, it was so, and Jim had just recently told a story on, on his podcast um, when a fan asked him, you know, why did, uh, why did WWF pick uh, Michael Cole over Kevin Kelly? And he said, because Kevin Dunn, Kevin Dunn liked Michael Cole and didn't like me. Uh, but he told the story about, you know, ah, oh, we've got to talk to these HD net guys and, and get you on board. Yeah. Cause that play by play guy, he doesn't know anything. And come to find out that the director or the executive producer of HD net sports was best friends with Mike Hogwood. So he wasn't going to change and, oh, okay. Well, he says, talk to Carrie Silken. Maybe you can get something going on there. Carrie, let me help you. He said, I don't have any money to pay you. I said, I don't care. I'll call your DVDs. That's fine. He said, that'd be great. It'd be awesome. I could only pay you this. That's fine. Really? I don't care. It's fine. 
And so I started doing that. I, I realized that I couldn't call it like sports entertainment, that I needed to uh, call it a little bit more uh, on the inside. So I needed, but I also relied on my experience of speaking in sound bites and being able to ask questions and um, not getting too far ahead of myself as far as being an announcer and, and lend that to the overall production. Uh, but then getting used to and familiar with a lot of new guys. It was all new guys, young guys that I, you know, some guys I had some experience with and other guys I was just meeting for the first time. So I really needed to get to know them and their stories in order to be able to accurately tell them on the air. Um, obviously you spent some time there with, with Ring of Honor and uh, what was the, obviously you say like you call it differently and the, the sports entertainment compared to wrestling. What was it that, um, when you first started calling the action, what was the first thing that you noticed about the product and its big differences between WWF? The pace. Mm. Everything was fast, fast, fast. 18 foot ring as opposed to a 20 foot ring. So the reaction time between moves is shorter. Um, and there was less time taken for, for it to drink in. Uh, the overall production value was less than WWF, you know, where you had the best lighting, the best cameras, the best this, the best that, you know, it was, uh, it, it was done on a budget. And so that took a little bit of getting used to. Um, also how to use my voice, calling multiple DVDs in a day and screaming and yelling and then blowing out your voice. You know, I had to really get good with my breath control and being able to do things like that. We weren't, uh, you know, sometimes I'm on a stick mic and not on headset. So it would be a little bit not blow, don't blow out your voice, you know, um, do what you can to save your voice. You got to have it for the main event and the same intensity. Hey, so we're calling this first match and we're shot out of a cannon. We can't be tired by the time we get to that main event. We got to do it the opposite way, you know, let the show build. Hey, the opening match is fine, but it's the opening match. And then when we have the first half uh, main event, you know, right before intermission and then pick it up with the popcorn match all the way through to the main event, you've got to pace yourself and, uh, take the audience on a journey. So that was different. The, one of the other things too, and it's not a knock on Ring of Honor or that style, but guys would go out and every match was like a main event. You know what I mean? It was difficult. And it, it's hard as an announcer to be able to have that level of passion and intensity through a three-hour show with eight big matches that are all main events to the guys who were in the ring. What led you from there to your role currently in New Japan? Well, the New Japan stars that started to come in, um, which I was, you know, kind of on the ground floor of those conversations, uh, Tiger Tori and Rocky Romero had reached out to Ring of Honor and wanted to uh, work towards having some New Japan guys come over to the States and be on Ring of Honor shows. So then, you know, it was up to uh, Delirious and I to kind of sell that to Joe Coff. And it was a little, you know, it wasn't an easy sell. Uh, what's in it for us kind of thing, which is a good question to ask. Um, obviously, it's going to draw. It's going to sell tickets, and we'll be able to fill arenas that we haven't been able to fill. These guys are bigger stars than our biggest stars. So Joe didn't really understand that, and but once he saw it, he got it, you know, and saw the difference. And uh, through that, you know, getting to know some of the guys, getting to know that team a little bit, and then, hey, we're – we want to start having English commentary on a regular basis on New Japan World. So uh, at first it was me and Matt Stryker. 
And then it became me and Steve Carino because we were the team on ROH. And uh, it's just continued to grow ever since then. Uh, you've worked with a few people uh, through New Japan, obviously Steve Carino, you worked with uh, Chris Charlton and Matt Stryker and, um, and Lanny Poffo as well as another one that you've worked with. Who has surprised you uh, behind the desk as a commentator? Well, I've had, you know, again, Nigel McGuinness was the first, when we started television with uh, Ring of Honor, Nigel was not our first choice because at the time, Nigel was under contract to TNA. Um, and we, Cornette and I, came up with the idea that it should be uh, Adam Pierce as a former Ring of Honor star, former NWA champion who no longer wrestling anymore, but there were some bad feelings with uh, some folks still in Ring of Honor from when Adam left. So it, it didn't happen. And then, okay, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Cornette didn't want it to be him. Um, and then uh, he, he called me one day and said, hey, how would you feel about working with Nigel McGuinness? I said, that'd be great. Isn't he? No, he just got let go or asked for his release or whatever it was. So we were able to get him. And I said, yeah, sure. I said, How's, will his accent be okay? And, and Jim said, yeah, I think it'll be okay. And it was. It was never a problem. Uh, only because, you know, we were airing uh, in America, you know, and it's like, we want to make sure that there isn't anything that would like impede uh, the audience's understanding of what we were doing. And as soon as Nigel and I sat down that first show, it was like, okay, this is going to be good. So he really surprised me. And then I've had, you know, just the pleasure of working with so many different people, uh, with Gino Gambino and Rocky Romero. Rocky's great. He's really grown into his role. And anytime we've had the wrestlers come and sit down with us at ringside and do uh, half a show or a full show. Juice Robinson did most of the best of the Super Juniors with us. Um, I think the whole tournament, actually, uh, in 2019. He was great. And I just said, just be you. Just be Juice. Just say, say the same things you say to me or the boys backstage. You know, if you're watching in, the, you know, in your hotel room. And he did. And he was outspoken and he was different. And it was really good. I have been pleasantly surprised, though, with everybody I've worked with because they realize, wow, this is harder than it looks. Chris Saban was fantastic. He did the uh, Super Junior Final with me, uh, was it two years ago? I think it was two years ago. And he was just great. Oh my gosh, he was tremendous. Uh, so yeah, we've had, uh, I've had a lot of fun, a lot of good experiences. Is there somebody you'd love to sit down and do commentary with? That I haven't had the chance to, wow, let me think. Um, Hmm. Well, I got to work. Future. Yeah, I got to work. Well, obviously, you know, I got to work with Jr., which was really cool. Um, because Jr. and Josh Barnett had done, um, the New Japan on Access TV. But then when I got the chance to work with Jr., it was, I felt like it was the great team because he could do his thing and I could fill in the blanks, you know, and that way the audience kind of got everything. They got Jr. and they got the factual information that, you know, JR wasn't too strong on, you know, obviously being able to sit down and, and call a show with Gordon Soley would be outstanding where I would sort of take that same spot. Like Gordon would be JR and, you know, I could fill in the blanks as more or less the analyst uh, and let Gordon kind of drive in that regard. Um, you know, if I had another, kind of legendary name, you know, if, if uh, Terry Funk would be fun, 
to do commentary with. Uh, Cornette would be great to do commentary with, you know, on New Japan because he knows a lot about New Japan history. So that would be a lot of fun. Um, but hey, I'm very happy with who I've gotten the chance to work with. Mm. And, and a list of people is incredible that you work with. And uh, here's to many more. Uh, with with the, When it comes to New Japan, making the shift from like... Um, from WF through to Ring of Honor to New Japan. Was there a cultural difference that you were aware of when you started there and, and did, it, uh, did you adapt your style to suit it? Well, at first I didn't do well. My first show was King of Pro Wrestling in October of 2015. And I listened to uh, the, it's the Super J cast now. I can't remember what it used to be called. Anyway, uh, Damon and Colin, Damon especially, took me to task and justifiably so because I wasn't great. I wasn't knowledgeable enough. Um, so I really had to dive in and know my history and know my facts and that I wasn't a new Japan that I, because at first I wasn't a new Japan announcer. I was the ring of honor announcer who was calling new Japan. So that took a little bit and culturally I just wrestling is wrestling. And other than just getting used to being in Japan, which was, you know, that was the first time I'd ever been there. Um, it was, it was very much, but it was also very eye-opening too about how first class in operation New Japan is. They, it wasn't anything like independent wrestling in the States. It, this is major league and mm -hmm. every step along the way is big time major league pro wrestling from the stars, the way they look to the production the equipment, uh, the accommodations, it was all, it's all first class. And you can't ask for any more than that. We've got one more match to get to for your DVD. Uh, so we'll round that out in just a moment. Before we do, I'd like to spring this on people because it's nice to get the initial reaction to this question. It's nothing bad, don't, don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> when we send you on this island, as well as taking three matches, we are going to let you take a movie, an album, and a luxury item. Hmm. So um, a movie that you love, an album that you love and a creature comfort or something that's uh, that would be useful or just comforting to you whilst you're on said island. So. All right. So movie. How would a movie? What movie would you take? I would take Caddyshack. Nice. Uh, it, it's my. Well, I would have to think about it. Cat, the three movies that I would consider as I'm staring at the DVD rack, Kevin, you can only take one. I would look at Rocky, Caddyshack, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or The Matrix, four movies. Ooh. This is harder than it looks. Which Matrix, though, the first one? Oh, the first one. Yeah. <sighs> All right, let me get back to that. Um, album. Hmm. Album. Hmm. So, something you've listened to lately, maybe <sighs> that you've that you've that you've had on. That's the, when you've been in a in a bit of a you know, and you've been on the back foot mentally, and you've put an album on, and it's immediately made you go, "Yes, here we go." After you know, anything. I've been listening to a lot of Van Halen lately, with Eddie Van Halen's passing. So probably 1984. Van Halen uh, would be nice. the one that I would grab. Um, anything like. Uh, Rush would be another one too. Uh, Moving Pictures, that was my favorite Rush album, but I came to appreciate a lot of the older stuff 
as well. But moving pictures is a solid one. Um, so I would probably say 1984, uh, just because I know that it would be a safe pick that I would always go back to. Okay. Before we go to luxury item, how are we getting on with that movie? All right, let's go with Caddyshack. That was my the first gut, one you said, so I feel like that's First right. one I said, my gut reaction is Caddyshack, and the others I will, I will miss, but I can never go wrong with Caddyshack. And a luxury item. My bed. Nice, nice. Because I am, I'm not sleeping on the ground. If I go camping, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sleeping on the ground. I can't do it. I'm on a desert island. I've got to have my bed. How well do you sleep? Amazing, as you found out uh, with us trying to schedule <laughs> this interview. I was, yeah, so we, we did schedule this for the other week, and um, and bless you, you've, you've been doing all sorts of other stuff and you slept through. So these yeah, things happen. And it's I know it was, uh, I'm up early. Uh, you know, I'm still, I, I had kind of gotten back on Japan time through the G1, and then it was uh, trying to kick out. And it's like I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, and then by, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, it's my bedtime. And, you know, because I go to bed at like one, get up at five, and it was a long nap. I was taking a series of naps instead of sleeping eight hours. But uh, normally, I sleep beautifully. Oh, nice, nice. Okay. So, um, currently, obviously, we've talked a lot about New Japan. You are a big part of New Japan Strong. This was, a, this was something really exciting that New Japan announced last year, this expansion into America. And obviously, the world caught fire between that announcement and now. But regardless, we have New Japan Strong. It, is a, it has a weekly presence. How is all of that working out? I think it's been great because it's not only given fans the chance to see, uh, you know, a New Japan style product, but they've also gotten to see uh, some new faces uh, from the American scene, which they might not have been aware of otherwise. Uh, if you're just a New Japan subscriber, you're just a New Japan fan, you've gotten to see the stars of Bullet Club, you've gotten to see some Young Lions, you've gotten to see Rocky Romero. But you've also gotten to be introduced to Fred Rosser, who th people would say, he looks familiar. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was Darren Young. <gasps> really? Oh, my God, he's good. He's amazing. <laughs> and he's been Tom a revelation Lawler. since he left. Yeah, and Tom Lawler. Oh, my God, Tom Lawler. My goodness, he looks like the toughest man in the world. <laughs> and he is. He's been fantastic. Um, and a lot of stars, like new faces, Danny Limelight, Blake Christian, Alex Zane. We've also gotten reintroduced to ACH. And PJ Black, if you're not a fan of ROH and you haven't seen that, you've gotten to see him. And Brody King has just been like this big physical marvel. Um, so it's been, it's been really good for fans to be able to introduce itself. And the show probably wouldn't have happened were it not for COVID, right? Were it not for the global shutdown and New Japan saying, we should really be looking at producing original content because now we don't have live events. So that's kind of where the, you know, the impetus for New Japan Strong came from. And, and the fans uh, are benefiting because they're getting introduced to so much new stuff. So was this not, so were, were we not to see New Japan Strong had it not been for COVID then? Was that I don't think so. I don't think so because I think they would have just continued with producing live events. And they would have been added to the mix. But this is an hour-long episodic television show. It's different than a, uh, you know, than a live event. Uh, so it has the feel of a TV show. It has uh, the look and the size that I think is required for no fans being in the arena. 
And I think the production has been fantastic on it. Uh, and and I, so, yeah, I don't, but I don't think that this show, and I haven't been told, this is just my kind of feeling about it. I don't think there would have been the bandwidth to do anything else other than producing live events. And the one thing about this show is that, you know, wrestling fans are so divided. There's so many different elements and aspects of wrestling these days. And if you don't want sports entertainment, you have weekly wrestling in a beautifully produced package mm -hmm. waiting for you with New Japan Strong. It's been uh, very good to be, and to be able to work with Alex Kozlov as well, because he has such a great history with New Japan. And he's such a talented guy. He's so creative uh, to be able to draw out of him that freedom to be able to say what's on your mind. And if you make mistakes because English is your second language, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It doesn't have to sound pretty. Like he couldn't get straight the Regal twins, which one is Logan and which one is Sterling. So they became the Logan brothers. You know what I mean? And we laughed about it, <laughs> but that's just part of the charm of Alex Kozlov. But we take the wrestling very seriously. And, uh, you know, we were just like, uh, sharing emails back and forth one of the things we're going to do is a you know a look back at the you know within the calendar 2020 and is our favorite matches of the year and my favorite match of the year was was fred rosser versus clark uh, connors which just aired i think a week or so ago and it was a rugged struggle they were fighting over it was like it was like football in a way they were struggling over yardage they were trying to gain an inch in the ring and there was very little space between the guys. That's the way Fred likes to wrestle. He's on you, on you, on you. Same with Clark Connors, who has grown immensely, still a young lion, but ready to break out. It's been really wonderful to, to see these matches and these moments come out in, in a setting that, like I said before, might not have happened otherwise. And uh, it's the matches and moments that bring us together. And we round off your DVD now with your third match for your Desert Island Graps DVD. We've had uh, Briscoe and Funk. We've had Hart and Austin. What's your third and final match going to be, Kevin? Tanahashi versus Okada. There's a shock, right? Oh. Wrestle Kingdom 9. Beautiful. Uh, it was uh, the best of the best uh, in their series. It was my favorite match. Uh, and again, you know, the high stakes, Tanahashi being the ace and Okada unable to beat uh, Tana at the dome and coming so close and walking away and breaking down in tears as he's heading out of the Tokyo Dome. It was wonderful. Um, there were a lot of matches that I could have chosen my personal only because that match is so iconic. Um, my favorite match, actually, though from New Japan was Ibushi versus Okada from Wrestle Kingdom last year. Um, if you go back and you watch that match, you could watch that match in 20 years and it'll hold up. And you could show it to a fan from the 70s and they would like it. The thing it had everything. The, the Ibushi match from last year is was so good. And because of the finish, it just, it whets the appetite so much more for Wrestle Kingdom in January. I know. Because it, it, it's like it, that close this time. It's, an, oh, it, it's powerful. And immediately people said, well, how is Ibushi going to get back here? Well, he has to win the G1 next year. Well, that's not going to happen. Nobody goes back to back. It hadn't happened since 03 and 04. Well, Ibushi did it. <laughs> so now we'll get a chance to uh, hopefully see Ibushi uh, emerge victorious. And a lot of people are saying that this year is the year that uh, the contract holder loses. 
So Jay White gets the shot at Ibushi uh, coming up at Power Struggle on November the 7th. And a lot of people are saying that we could wind up with an all-Bullet Club main event at Wrestle Kingdom. I'm not so sure, but <laughs> that's why they play the game. How, how excited are you for Wrestle Kingdom in January? Very excited. Um, we've been doing, uh, you know, the big events live. And I think that, you know, the hope and the plan is, is that I will be there live. It's not confirmed yet uh, because of COVID, because of flying into the country. It's not something that is a guarantee. It's what we're working toward. But again, the type of visa that I have, it, it's a different type of resident visa. So um, if I could get into the country, I would. And if, uh, if not, of course, we'll bring it live. But I'm so psyched, you know, two nights again. And I think it's just going to be wonderful and marvelous. And hopefully we we turn the page on 2020 with a fresh start and the first big events of the year of 2021. And everybody's hopeful that we can get back to some form of normalcy in the new year and we can put the rotten 2020 behind us. And uh, it is on that, on that wonderful note that uh, I say thank you for a, a wonderful 90 minutes of your time today. It's been as, you know, to, to, to gush slightly in the same way how you, you got to meet people that you watched growing up. Like you're somebody that I watched as an aspiring announcer and commentator myself. You're somebody that I watch and I've always been a fan of your work and I'm genuinely delighted that I slid into your DMs and you replied. That's genuine. I'm very excited that you did. Pretty much how it went. Yeah. And, and again, it's a, uh, you know, it's my pleasure uh, and to be able to, you know, speak to you and your audience uh, and kind of share my passion for what we all love. That's what brings us together. And no matter where you are, where I am, what language we speak, if we like wrestling, we like wrestling. And, and the hope is, is that we introduce um, our new friends, common goal, commonality being pro wrestling. Hey, here's what I like. Oh, here's what I like. And, you know, people might go and seek out a, a, a Dory Funk Jr. versus Jack Briscoe match. And, oh, wow, that was cool. And be able to go to YouTube and see the, you know, the turn of 1980. That's how it's titled on YouTube. Uh, go watch that and, you know, relive Austin and Brett and uh, go back and watch a Tanahashi and Okada match. Watch all of them. You know, they're all up on New Japan World. So, yeah, there's uh, there's just so much that we have in common, no matter where we're from. It's, it's one language. It's pro wrestling. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 